This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, and the author of the novel, Love Marriage. So like many people, I'm a movie fiend, and I kind of hate watch the Oscars. And the Oscars are coming up. They're coming up on March 4th. So this is our movie episode. This is our Oscars episode. This is our adaptation episode. In my dreams, we are the first ever podcast to be adapted and made into a film. Yes. And I will be played by Rosario Dawson. It will be very exciting. That will be good. Well, who's going to play me? I don't know. I don't even know any actors. There is this actor named Ron Eldard who is in the House of Sand and Fog. Uh, and he, he look very He's funny. the cop. I don't want to be the cop. Well, wait. All right. Wait a minute. The only person I want to be, I want to be a different kind of cop. Can I be a different kind of cop? Sure. Walter Goggins from The Shield. He doesn't even look like me, but I want to wear I don't know about that way. I don't know that I can buy that. But all right, we get to cast ourselves in this this fantasy adaptation episode where we're going to talk about novels that have been made into movies. And fortunately, because I, uh, despite having several friends who have had their books made into movies, it still seems to me like a really mysterious kind of alchemy. And I don't really... I don't really know how it works, but really fortunately today too, we have... It's way too of a mysterious process for you and I, Sugi. We need to, <laughs> Do you think we can crack it? How are we going to figure it out? We need to get some movies made of our books, man. Fortunately, later on in this episode, we'll be talking to novelist Jeff Vandermeer, who has had a book made into a movie. His novel Annihilation, which is the first book in his famed Southern Reach trilogy, is now a Paramount film, which will be released nationally later this week. But first, we're going to talk to production and development executive Christina Sibyl about how the book adaptation process looks from the industry point of view. Christina has worked on a number of films. Uh, she was a producer on the movie 13 and uh, a development and production executive on two major films adapted from novels, two, 2003's House of, The House of Sand and Fog, from the novel of the same title by Andre Debuse III, and 2004's Sideways from the Rex Pickett novel, also of the same name. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I was watching House of Sand and Fog last night in preparation for this conversation, and I saw Sideways when it first came out, and, and House of Sand and Fog was just wow. Um, so it's really terrific to have you with us. Um, that movie was like so brilliant and also quite stressful. Um, yeah, it's a hugely stressful movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your career in film and how you got into this? Sure. Um, actually, I got into film incredibly by accident. I had started in a completely different field uh, as a dancer, but that idea of... Well, that's a common line going from dancing to into film. <laughs> I know, right? To filmmaking. Exactly. Um, but it's an, actually, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of that active interpretation, taking somebody's narrative, sort of an elusive narrative, so to speak, and transforming it into something concrete. And so that process of delineating narrative has always been sort of at the heart of what I've done creatively. Practically how I got into the industry was I went to Yale School of Drama. Um, 
and worked with a number of fantastic collaborators on the acting end, on the directing end. And I was there as what's called a dramaturg, which is about the study of study and structure of plays and writing and things like that. Um, after that, I worked at a uh, theater festival, Williamstown Theater Festival, and I had the good grace of working with Arthur Miller. Um, wow. And that was, yeah, and that was really important because I remember one of the first times that I met him, and there was a huge immense height difference between us. I'm a, I'm a reasonably <laughs> short person. He's a, He was a massive giant of a man, both in terms of his literary stature and just physical self. Mm-hmm. And I remember he looked down at me and he was like, how, you know, he, he had asked me, he looked down at me and he had said, how long do you have to read into a play to know whether it's good or not? Um, and that was really effective to start thinking about this idea of voice and having to actually answer that to, to Mr. Miller um, and all of that. What did you say? And, <laughs> you know what? I actually said that you can tell on the first page, you, you know, or that you can tell on the first page that you can always tell if there's voice and that you can always tell whether there's something to say right from the first few pages of a piece of work. Did he agree? He accepted it. I don't know if he agreed, but, you know, he accepted the answer, Hmm. (laughs) which was great. Um, And then honestly, coming out to L.A., I didn't really care whether I worked out and whether I worked in film or not. But um, I began I had a conversation with a producer, which was in a way my first entrance into the film industry. And he had worked on an Arthur Miller adaptation. And so we had a very opinionated conversation about how they had messed up that adaptation. Um from the play's point of view, from the original, sort of the genesis of the author's point of view, the, the, uh, the author of the IP's point of view. And, um, and he offered me a job in development, and that's where I started. Oh, wow. So you've worked on these two fairly well-known uh, adaptations of novels, and I knew you would be a perfect guest for this. And then also, you know, for a Literary Hub podcast, having met Arthur Miller is automatic entree. Um, I know, right? Yeah, I, I, I earn points right there. <laughs> so how does – look, our listeners are readers, you know, for the most part, or writers. Uh, you know, so how does a book get noticed and considered by producers? You know, what, what does the optioning, optioning process look like, right. you know? There's this big leap between having a work optioned and then having it actually made into a, an actual film. I have sure. so many friends who've had, you know, books optioned and then they never get made. What is it that – you know, gets a book through that process. Sure. Um, well, it's interesting. It's difficult to get any movie made. And so it's tremendously difficult to get any book through the optioning process and then through the development process and then kick it through the green light process and actually get it to the point of shooting and release. Um, so it's all a miracle when any movie gets made. And it's even more of a miracle when a book actually transforms into a movie successfully. Most producers are avid readers. Um, and we read a lot of books. And so the truth of the matter is most of us, you know, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now is I have a ton of books I would love to turn into movies. Um, and some of them rise really quickly. Like, you know, the ones that we're talking about today, House of Sand and Fog, that was a highly competitive book. So many studios wanted it. And that one was on Oprah's book club when Oprah had a book club. And that was, that was a highly competitive book to get. Um, so a lot of it for me, you know, every great adaptation has a lot to do with the idea of the creative participants in it from the idea of the base book, um, to the person doing the adaptation to the director that comes on board to the entire process in a sense. So 
it's difficult because sometimes there's great books that would make a great movie, but it doesn't come together very easily. Some of them will come together years later. Um, well, yeah, like and, with Sideways. Yeah. I mean, I get it that The House in Sand and Fog was an incredibly popular book. It sold very yep. well. You, you get there's – there's a built-in audience there to some yeah. extent. Sideways was a book that I had never heard of until it was made into Sideways, a movie. Sideways was unpublished until the movie was made. Okay. So, um, so how did that process work? You know, Sideways took eight years from mm-hmm. the time I started working on it to the time that we then started shooting. And the book hadn't even been published at that point. I always called Sideways the monster in, you know, the monster in, the monster in the box that was on the desk because <laughs> it was a, it was reams of paper in a, you know, in a Kinko's box on my desk. And it was this ever evolving novel that kept going through, uh, you know, its own shaping and adaptation through, um, through the writing process. Um, so even as you were making the film, the novel itself was changing? Yeah, absolutely. I think we had a pretty consistent draft of the novel in the last couple of years of the adaptation process. Um, but the novel itself was growing and evolving. Could you just sort of frame, um, frame the, the story real quick, just in case our readers or li- our listeners haven't, haven't read sure. or seen the movie? Essentially, it, the movie itself is about two best friends, two guys in their middle age, on the cusp of middle age. One's about a week away from, them, from getting married. And the other one is a hopeless bachelor, basically, but knows a ton about wine. And so they go to the Central California wine, um, wine area, wine, uh, you know, sort of to the to the to the vineyards and all of that to go pick up wine and sort of have a last boys' week before the marriage. And it really becomes a interesting look at, you know, guys on the cusp of middle age looking at where their life is going in the next you know, the next phase of their life. And do they like it? Do they not like it? Are they growing up? Have they grown up? Have they not? And, you know, it's it's an interesting, it's a rumination on that sense of passage through middle age. Christina, it sounds like the process by which you made Sideways yeah. was pretty unusual in comparison to other films. So was, it, was it freeing or different in any way to not have the finished novel? When new versions of it would come in, would you would you look and sort of see what the changes were? Or I mean, that that's I mean, already yeah. the whole process seems so bananas to me that, um, and this seems like another level. Well, the novel didn't materially change. It always had a similar structure of going through the weeks, or going through the week from it goes from like Saturday to Saturday, basically mm-hmm. of their trip. And so it's a very, in a sense, a formless formless novel. It has that sort of sense of structure of each day having its own sort of entity and its own journey. It's almost like um, diary entries. There wasn't a lot of vast structural change once we really got into the writing of the screenplay. I know that really well because essentially I will always say that my one task on Sideways uh, that I that I took on from beginning to end was tracking the changes in the novel that as read. Oh, wow. I, I just always remember that. I would feel like a weekend would be lost when I would get like the next raft of pages or the new draft from Rex. And I'd be like, I guess I'm going to do a page by page comparison this weekend and that shall be my oh, weekend. <laughs> But there must have been... We're a real pain in the butt. (laughs) I know. It it is the sexy part of filmmaking when you have to do a draft uh, page-by-page comparison on an 800-page novel. But somebody must have really believed in some sort of core to that story. And I wondered, I mean, for me, when I... uh, I, There's this scene pretty early on when Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church, Miles, and is it Jack? Uh, Yep. Their character names are having breakfast. They've just left uh, uh, Miles' mom's house. 
and they have this sort of ethical dispute about what the weekend's going to be. And Miles, it's all yeah. about aesthetics, and Jack, it's all about sex. And that, right. you know, that ethical conflict must have always been there. That, to me, is something that I would teach a fiction writer to do. I would say, you know, you got to have an ethical conflict between your characters. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of screenplay structure, that's something that lends itself so well to that sort of screenplay embrace. They're both looking for immensely different things out of that weekend, you know, or out of that week. It's interesting to think about the the books and movies that where where both versions are good, but they're extremely different. And I think mm. you know, probably we can also all, I guess in this case, um, you know, I'm I'm in I'm in the camp of people who like both the English patient novel and the English patient movie. And I know that right. there was a whole Seinfeld episode of people who think that the English patient movie was was not great, but it is one oh, of my all time favorites. I mean, right. I, I just right. I I love that movie, but I it's also such a dramatic departure from the book. And then I I think you know we can probably also all think of books turned movies that were duds. Right. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about. I don't know, a, a book that was surprisingly good when adapted or anything that you you sort of think is the kind of characteristic that's that's ripe for adaptation? So for me, it's less about material and more about the dialogue that a filmmaker has with the material, because ultimately, you know, in a way we look at the we look at the, you know, the text that's being adapted as one you know, one emotional source of material in a sense, or one factual source of material or one literary source of material. And then we look at the filmmaker and sort of their canon of work as sort of another source of ideas and inspiration and form and, you know, sort of form. And then really what happens is there's almost a tertiary product created that's a dialogue between that text, meaning that original book and the filmmaker and that third and that and that film that they create. Now, I mean, Alexander Payne has been somebody who's done this. That that's something yeah. that he does. You know, is is work from yeah. books. I can think of yeah. other. What are the other movies that he's done that that have been based on books? Um, gosh, did I'd he have to do think. the Russell Bank adaptation of the School Bus that is Frozen? Or am I no, that's else? Adam McGowan. Okay, that, that's that right. I get those two confused. I um, and that was the Sweet Hereafter, and that's actually yeah. one of my, honestly, it's like that was before I got into the film industry. That's one of my favorite favorite movies of all times. It's one of my favorite adaptations of all times because it's like I love Russell Banks's work, and I think that's he's a really interesting author because he's both beautifully evocative and also um, doesn't always give us a great hard narrative to follow. I don't know if they are great, but you know what I mean? Like there's like, it's a, it, there's, there's uh, if you follow the, the very factual story of his books or sort of the, that very linear sort of structure of his narrative, you're not getting to what actually the story is. I, I mean, I know, you know, at, this is a, this is a two part question, but isn't it true yeah. also that once author an author gets like one book made into a movie, then several others will get made. In other words, affliction oh, was made somewhere around that time from Russell Banks's, yeah. You know, sort of work. That's then, also a great adaptation. That's it is. Yeah. Um, and yet, he has also, I was once at a dinner, weirdly, I went and saw Russell Reed in New York, and, and was at yeah. a dinner at which Will, Willem Dafoe was there, and like John Adams, the composer, and I was like the weird, who's the hell this guy at this dinner? <laughs> um, but... <laughs> Russell was tr- still trying to get Continental Drift made, and that is mm. a really complicated structural novel that sure. has all kinds of thematic things. In it. I don't, he's, it's, I, I, last time I talked to him, he said it was still they were still working on it, but that you know that book's right. been around for a long time. It must be the structure that's hard there. 
it's the structure or quite honestly, sometimes it's literally like it really took Alexander a while to really crack sideways. Um, what do you mean and, by crack? A lot of times I will help a writer crack a, a book. And, the, and what I mean by that is it's what we try to figure out how. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's separate writing entities, and that's the thing that needs to be solved in a sense, is that you have your novelist or, you know, who's ever written the book in a sense, and then whoever's adapting it, they have to sort of break open that emotional or spiritual or narrative line in a way that makes complete emotional and literary sense to them and also structural sense to how it transforms into a movie. Um, So what was the thing he cracked? I mean, can you remember what it was that was the key insight to making Sideways into a movie rather than a book? I think, you know, honestly, for Alexander, he can crack just about anything. He just, you know, he needed the time and space to focus on it. And he, at the time that we started on it, he was an immensely busy filmmaker. Um, And he was doing, we were on the track of working on Sideways when he, uh, I remember getting a call in the office one day. He's like, you know, I have this other project called About Schmidt. I don't, that might have actually been an adaptation yeah, of it yeah. as well. That was. Um, I like, was just, he also yeah. did, what, Election? Election, which is, Election, yeah, that's a Tom Parada novel, right? Such a yeah. great book. And that's a great book as well. So, yeah, Alexander does work with this a lot. And, you know, I do think most, you know, again, most filmmakers, successful filmmakers are readers as well. So we read. For Alexander, I think it, when the story really came together, and I can't speak for him, but I can speak towards what I observed of the process. But really, for me, it really felt like there was something that he was discovering about where he was in his own life. Um, and working that out, in a sense, through these two characters. And there's this one singularly beautiful passage that exists in the movie that is just purely a piece of Alexander's writing um, that is not from the novel. And oh. it's one of my passages in the film but it also is one that's a really it's a beautiful piece of adaptation because it actually it's something that we need structurally in a film that didn't exist structurally in the novel and so it had to be a created moment so can you tell us what that was yeah it's the it's paul giamatti's uh, monologue it's paul giamatti's monologue at the end where he talks about um how wine is a living thing yeah and it's this beautiful sense of how you get to your, you know, in a sense, how a bottle of wine evolves and grows and it gets to its cusp when it has to be opened. And so the fragility of the grapes and the fragility of this entire process. And it really is, it's strictly about wine and grapes and the maturing of a bottle. But in reality, it feels so emotionally connected. And Paul did an amazing job obviously, you know, rendering that character and, and delivering that monologue really feels like he's speaking about something deeply personal um, rather than a bottle of wine. And that's the thing that makes that it, it becomes it's beautiful in that moment. I remember that that moment and it being really powerful. I wonder if I mean, it's also interesting to know that it's Alexander's writing and not, say, Rex's. And I wonder, is that the sort of thing that, say, 
a filmmaker will run by the fiction writer or, I mean, do you know if that happened in this instance? I'm just, I'm curious about, I mean, obviously there's sort of not that kind of tight, there's not sort of neat fidelity to the text necessarily, but I mean, the spirit of it or I don't know. Rex was utterly supportive of the, the writing process and the breaking process and things like that. Um, and, uh, and there was a dialogue back and forth in terms of how the script was evolving. Um, mostly we, we, I don't mean to, mostly we kept Rex out of dialogue with Alexander. Yeah, see, this is how it works. Get the writer out (laughs) of the way. Um, it's true, but largely what we needed at that moment was for Alexander to create his movie. So Rex never had a sense of a, never had a sense of approval over the script process. Um, nor did, uh. But it was important to us that we were telling the story of Rex's book. It's kind of two brothers that are that are vying for attention to a do, to a degree. So you're, um, you know, it's a, a very close process, but they were, but also very separate. So going back to what you were saying before about talking about the way that the structures might differ between mm-hmm. book and movie, um, yep. I was mentioning that I had watched House of Sand and Fog this weekend, and yeah. I wonder if you could read for us from that book and describe a scene that moved in a different way into film. The, the structure of this book is very different than what the movie is. The movie is a very tight, linear structure. And we consciously really thought about the idea of what a proper Greek tragedy would look like on film. Um, so it has that sense of tragic necessity in terms of it, in terms of it all. But thematically, you know, we tried to be very faithful to the book. And I'm going to jump around a little bit within a couple of pages here. I opened my eyes and sat up in the front seat of the Bonneville. I could taste last night's cigarettes, and I turned the ignition key halfway to light up the digital clock. Then I heard a sound that had been in my sleep, and I turned and looked across the street at the house. Two carpenters were up on the roof above my kitchen. They were both shirtless, and one of them was ripping away shingles with a claw of his hanger while the, a hammer, while the other one was using his power saw to cut through my, my roof, my father's roof, Frankie's roof. Their pickup was truck was in parked in front of the house close to the driveway where I saw the new white Buick and the shine of my headlights as I drove up the hill, but now it was gone. And I should have listened to Lester Burden and stayed away from there. I yelled up at them, but they couldn't hear me over the saw, so I stepped around the roof and climbed up the ladder. They were both tan, and one of them had a tattoo of a diner on his shoulder. They stopped cutting and looked at me, and, uh, and the one tattoo tattooed them back at me again. What are you doing? The one that had to dropped his hammer in his tool belt. Well, excuse me? Who said you could do this? This is my fucking house. Uh, he peered at me. He peered over the roof down his truck in my car. And you are? I own this house. Me. Get off my roof. Are you Mrs. Barani? No. And then it continue on. I, uh, I climbed back down the ladder and began stepping over the shingles. And one of the carpenters yelled to watch out for the nails as I stepped on the upside down plywood where dozens of nail points were sticking out. And now four or five of them were sinking into the heel and the ball of my foot. I screamed, jerking my knee up, the blood dripping. Here, the tattooed carpenter squad in front of me and tied a bandana tight around my ankle. He stopped. He helped me stand and guided me to the front steps, my front steps, and he knocked on the screen door. I had my hand on his bare shoulder, my elbow against his back. His skin was warm and damp, and I could feel muscle under it. I was thinking how I hadn't brushed my teeth or washed my face, and I slept in my car that last night, and now was bleeding on my own doorstep, waiting for a stranger to answer. And really what and what happens to sort of set up that, that section yeah, of the book yeah. is that um, – she has lost her family's house. Uh, she's a recovering alcoholic and, you know, and has sort of lost track of life. The males come in, 
she hasn't opened it. She hasn't dealt with so much, so much of the paperwork of life. And she's lost her house to an unpaid business tax that was, um, you know, uh, sort of unjust, but she didn't follow through the paperwork in the correct way. And she lost her house to auction. And then, um, Barani is a, uh, a Iranian immigrant. The story takes place in the eighties, um, who had fled the, um, the revolution basically, and has, was trying to remake his life for he, he, he and his young family basically in the United States and had bought the house at auction. This was a first time writer director on that movie. Um, which is pretty phenomenal in terms of the, the, the Dean Perlman who did the adaptation and then also directed the movie. Um, but a lot of what he had to say about it in terms of what the story was really about, which I don't know if that was the original sort of, you know, intent of the book in a sense, but it was very strongly the Dean's intent was this idea of how much Americans take for granted. And that idea of that we have so much and we don't care, take care or value what we have. And the idea of the immigrant experience of having to come to the U.S. and having to scrape your way, in a sense, from a, from a life that could have had value elsewhere, you know, extreme emotional, familial, and economic value elsewhere, and having to start over from nothing. Um, and that sense of coming face-to-face, uh, and but in a warm human way of this this woman who is angry deeply angry at having lost her house and feels lost in her life and and coming confronting on her own front porch this family that is more at home in her own home um than she ever really was and is building a life you know so it it becomes this great that that scene becomes this great nexus of this this sense of of where these characters, where these two sort of groups of characters want to go. I don't want to spoil the movie or the book for for those who haven't read or seen it. Um, and I would suggest that everyone go in. I mean, I'm still filled with the residue of feeling from watching it last night. It, um, it does not leave you quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just feel like sort of still creeped out, but creeped mm-hmm. out sort of like by humanity, I think. But yeah. um, anyway, the, the movie has a frame structure, just okay. to get sort of really writer nerdy, that um, it has a frame structure that the book doesn't have. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if you can talk about that decision to kind of give it a different engine. The book itself starts on the construction scene where Barani is working on a basically a road gang in terms of uh, construction progress. And the movie itself, as you noted, it does have that sort of bookend structure. It starts with Kathy. And it starts at the end of the story. And it's difficult to tell what's happened at the end of the story because it's, you know, it's, it is structured like a tragedy. So I'm not going to blow it that, you know, in a sense that that there, not everyone gets out alive. And it starts with this, the line, I think, of um, the police, a police officer coming up to her and saying, uh, Kathy Nicolo, is this your house? Yeah. And then it cuts away. And when we first shot it, or in the, or in the script, it was, Kathy Nicolo, is this your house? And the line after it, this isn't my house. Um, and, or she says, no, this is not my house. And we didn't need that when we actually, when we, when we cut the movie together, but that, that sentiment is played. It's uh, the characters played by Jennifer Connelly. She does a tremendous job. Um, the sentiment, sentiment is played very clearly of, you know, and she just looks up and it's like, 
it become you feel the burden of what the house is. Our relationship with watching a movie structurally is very different. We have to think about really what becomes that overriding question that keeps us there. Um, you know, keeps our butts in the seat, so to speak. That book and structure speaks to an inherent need of screenplay structure. Of you start with that sense of what has happened with this. Is this your house? The question becomes what happened in that house. Um, And then as soon as we get introduced to this is her, you know, we change automatic. We uh, the movie then starts to it is her house. She's there at home with it. And it it keeps us keep uh, structurally wondering how did we get to that end point or how did we get to that beginning point that, that, you know, that sort of that bookend moment um, that is asking that question. Is this your house? What happened in there? Uh, one of the things I noticed also that you use that the the movie you use early on is montage to sort of get certain points of uh, across. You know, right. I, the sequence in which we come to understand that the colonel is pretending to be wealthy but is not in fact wealthy is really kind of amazing. Tour de yeah. force. I wondered how that compared to the way that's done in the book. The book, obviously, you have more time in a yeah. sense, you know, and, uh, in terms of revealing this all, and there's a lot, and the book has a lot more about what the fear was and what they were escaping in Iran. We didn't have time to show the backstory of their life in Iran, in Iran and it shows a little bit of it. We know he was a general. There's certain moments that are, that, uh, that, that we show critically in a sense, but mostly we need to understand there was a, that they were here, they were starting from zero. But those are like standing um, in for what could be 30 or 40 pages of, you know, pros. More than that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) More than that, in a sense. And I think, you know, you know, honestly, when I was talking earlier about this idea that books become a dialogue between the filmmakers and this director, honestly, his reel before then, he was a Russian immigrant. He was a Russian immigrant. He had immigrated to Toronto, actually. Um, And uh, he had never made a movie before, hadn't made a movie in, in the English language before. And he was a, an accomplished director commercially, but most of his reel were all truck ads. They didn't really have human beings in them. And yet he's going, oh God. For, I know. And he's going for this deeply, deeply human story. And I always, this is the phone call I always wish, always wish I had heard because he talked to the author of the book um, into letting him have, him have the rights. And he talked to him by saying, I understand what this, what this story is and this is how I want to tell it. He's like, this is an immigrant story. It's about starting, it's about the fight that we have to start over um, and, and, essential, and, and how hard it is to get that story understood and seen from the immigrant point of view. So, um, Christina, these films, I mean, Sideways and House of Sand and Fog were nominated for all sorts of awards. They racked up Oscar nominations and Sideways won Best Adapted Screenplay, too. Uh, there are not a ton of adaptations in the Best Picture races here, but Call Me By Your Name from the novel of the same name is up for Best Adaptation and also yeah. for Best Picture. And I'm wondering just sort of what adaptations you would point our listeners towards sort of in general this year or just what what has caught your eye? It's interesting because, uh, you know, honestly, there's a lot... There aren't as much this year in the best picture category, you're right, but pretty much everything that we see coming out right now is an adaptation of something. One of the best adaptations, I think, of the last couple of years was uh, was Moonlight last year. And it wasn't from a novel, but it was from a play. Call Me By Your Name is a fantastic adaptation. But it's actually interesting because it's like everything that, you know, it may not be the Oscar award winning stuff this year or in that in that play, but right now everything coming out is adapted material in terms of Ready Player One coming out. We have Black Panther 
I mean, obviously coming from an adaptation, not necessarily literary fiction per se, but deep IP sort of use. Jillian yeah. um, Flynn's next book in terms of shop, sharp objects coming out, things like that. But she's it's, a it's Kansas interesting. City writer, just to say. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah she, and, but you know what? She is, and she is a novelist that becomes, a, she's a great example sort of uh, novelists that their IP work really generates so much interest towards seeing the movie. I'm, I'm less a fan of Molly's game in terms of what it does in terms of the proactivity of the protagonist. I think there's, I feel like she's a character that winds her way, that simply makes it through the movie rather than proactively pushing her way through the movie, which is what I like to see a, a strong female pro- protagonist to do. The oh. one that I would, I would think of is Hidden Figures. Um, I think it's easy for us to forget the sort of ones that are adapted from nonfiction books, I suppose. But um, yeah, those, I mean, those were talk about powerful female protagonists. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and there's been a string of them. I mean, I think Imitation Game, it gets a, it gets a lot of flack on um, its truthfulness, per se, but it's a good adaptation mm-hmm. um, and brings Alan Turing into sort of popular culture again over the last, you know, several years and things like that. Um, but absolutely, there's been, you know, it's there. there's always, again, it becomes that sort of dialogue between the subject that the filmmakers want to make and sort of what that source material is. And when you find that way in and it really hits, I think you really have something. Thanks, Christina. It's really great to have you with us. And we'll be rooting for you in the box office fantasy league, which I hear you're a part of and looking forward to seeing whatever film you're working on next. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to do this. Thanks, Christina. And now we're so happy to bring on Jeff Vandermeer, the author of most recently born and the best selling Southern Reach trilogy, whose first volume, Annihilation, has been adapted for the screen by the director Alex Garland, and will be starring Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Tessa Thompson. Paramount will be releasing the film in the U.S. on February 23rd, the day after we release this podcast. Jeff, congratulations and welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. I I love uh, Lit Hub, so I appreciate it. Um, Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I would love to hear. I know that you went to the premiere of the movie in L.A. recently. How was that? It was a little uh, overwhelming and surreal at times, like being in a crowded mall for too long, which may sound strange. (laughs) Uh, But I just finished a novel and I'd been living like a hermit, you know, talking only to birds, cats and my wife for months, really. So to go from that directly to a Hollywood premiere was odd. Um, perhaps the most hilarious thing was all the fans who were lined up behind these barricades to see the stars, and there was just one lone guy who yelled out, love your work, Jeff, <laughs> when I got out of the car. <laughs> and I kind of took that as a as a win. Uh, that and that somehow we managed to not look too shabby <laughs> on the red carpet and somehow got in our act together. Um, it was also just, I mean, it was just surreal all the way around. It was surreal to have my picture taken with Tessa Thompson, whose work I'm a huge fan of. Wow. And uh, to meet Oscar Isaac, who was in the film. Uh, my stepson, Jason, actually used to be his talent agent many years ago. And it was just really cool because Oscar spotted him across the room at the after party and came up and gave him a big hug. And I think that was just kind of indicative of the kind of person that he is. So, so that, that, those things, those moments are the things that stand out for me. How hard well, is it to we were- pick clothes? I'm sorry? How how hard is it to pick clothes? Yes. Um, Well, that's the other thing, is that I've been living like a hermit, uh, and I've lost a fair amount of weight recently, so nothing in my wardrobe that was remotely fancy fit. So there was this last minute, you know, finish the novel, and then we happened to be in Miami for a a family reunion, and I had to pick out a suit there and then get it 
tailored or, or altered within 24 hours and then go to Hollywood um, and hope that the combination worked. And, and oddly enough, Anne's hair, which she had dyed blue and green, and my, my, my ensemble actually fit the movie poster colors and the color scheme in general. Nice. So we looked like we had planned it, but it was just like thrown together at the last second. <laughs> Oh God! Hashtag novel pro- novelist problems. Like I, yes, this is. I, I'm glad that you asked that question, Whitney. I I want to have this problem someday. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like being yeah. Cinderella, you know, Pretty a great. novelist going to a premiere, you know. Right, it is, and and also, you know, I before I was a full time writer, I was in the business world, and I grew to hate wearing business attire. So you know, most of my ensemble right now is like t-shirts and maybe with a blazer thrown over it. So yeah. <laughs> Ensemble is yeah. a very fancy word to describe what I am wearing normally. When I'm wearing. Yeah, it's basically yeah. like in which location am I going to wear my sweatpants? Is it going to be on my couch or in my bed? Exactly. So, yeah, I totally sympathize with this, like, the, like hermit to, you know, in my case, going to teach class. But anyway, um, we were just talking to Christina Civil about the pretty lengthy development process for Sideways and the House of Sand and Fog. But Southern Reach Trilogy was optioned by Paramount and Scott Rudin Productions in 2013 before the books were actually published in 2014. Were you surprised by that? And could you could you talk us through a little bit about what it was like to follow the production of the movie and of your own work through the five year arc of finding a director and casting and all of that? Were you always sure uh, it was going to get made? Um, not, not really. I mean, I had no expectation. I, I used to, I did a couple of treatments for things back in the day, not based on my own work that went nowhere. So I was fairly cynical about it. And it, it might have been even earlier than 2013, no matter when it was announced. But yeah, I was definitely surprised. Um, so it was the first time I'd sold film rights for any of the books, and I hadn't even finished the whole trilogy at that point. In fact, I was still making edits to book three as I was in the middle of the book tour for Annihilation. In fact, I finished edits on acceptance while staying at a bed and breakfast that just happened to be a lighthouse on the coast of California. <laughs> Very meta, actually, to do that. Uh, and the whole publishing schedule for the series was this experiment devised by FSG and my editor, Sean McDonald, and was kind of inspired chaos. So we were kind of happily surprised it worked. But, you know, you write a very personal book inspired by a dream you had while sick with bronchitis because of dental surgery. And you hand it to your wife when you're finished and you ask, is this even a novel? And then a few years later, it has a ton of readers and lots of reader art created for it and now a movie. It, it is actually a lot to process along with, you know, being a hermit and then going on a red carpet. So people are off, always curious about the interplay between a novelist and the movie industry, people who are adapting the book. And often, I mean, I think the lore is that, you know, kind of once a book is optioned, the author doesn't have much say. But I've heard all lots of sorts of different stories about how this process plays out. And I think our, our listeners, I know, would be really curious to hear how it worked for you. What sort of what sort of say, if any, did you have? <laughs> um, not very much. Um, very early on, I had a phone conversation with the director during which I could see he was of the type who had a kind of unique vision and he was interested in certain parts of the plot and not others. And in terms of the storyline being faithful to the book, I thought it important he didn't feel like I was putting obstacles in his way. Although, as you say, again, it was the traditional thing. I didn't have any say at the end of the day anyway, and I saw the script very late. Um, we did visit the set. My main takeaway beyond how much like Florida they'd made an English marsh look like uh, was how the cast had bonded and how much they loved the different energy and camaraderie of a cast of all women, which was nice to see. And then also the fact that in this village that they'd created, there was a mailbox full of uh, colorful lichen that they meant to be very alien and strange, but looked exactly like the lichen on our mailbox at home. Um, so one thing 
that kind of cracks me up is that the movie gets very strange, but if you hike in North Florida, um, some of the colors of the moss and the other things that are kind of psychedelic uh, in the movie, it's really kind of realistic to, to Earth itself. It's just that not a lot of people see that. Um, but, you know, in terms of that process, I think it'll be different next time. Uh, uh, Netflix has optioned my upcoming adult novel, Hummingbird Salamander, and I'll be serving as a executive producer and creative consultant. So it's oh. going to be different every time, I guess. So. Congratulations on that. That's Thank great. you. Yeah, I'm. I'm a, look. I'm a huge fan of the of the trilogy. Sean McDonald is my editor as well, and so he he sent oh, cool. it to me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very excited to see the movie. But for listeners who haven't read Annihilation yet, maybe you could just like outline the story for us and read a brief passage before we start talking about it some more. Basically, in Annihilation, there's an exploration of Area X, which is this strange, pristine wilderness cut off from the rest of the world by some mysterious event. Uh, There's an actual border or barrier. And then expeditions are sent in to figure out Area X's secrets. And the novel follows the 12th expedition, which consists of four women, a biologist, the narrator, a psychologist, a surveyor, and an anthropologist. Um, And if I say too much more it'll be kind of difficult because there are spoilers on almost every page, but it's true that early on they find a weird topographical anomaly. Sometimes I call it a typographical anomaly. Um, (laughs) They they argue about whether it's a tower or a tunnel, so they wind up calling it a tower tunnel. Um, And this plunges into the ground in an area uh, which is not marked on the map, which is very strange to them. And the beginning of the start of their own kind of paranoia about the secret agency that sent them in. And soon enough, they decide to explore in this short, brief passages from the very beginning of that exploration, again narrated by the biologist. A stairway did indeed lead down, this time at a gentle curve with much broader steps, but still made of the same materials. At about shoulder height, perhaps five feet high, clinging to the inner wall of the tower, I saw what I first took to be dimly sparkling green vines progressing down into the darkness. I had a sudden absurd memory of the floral wallpaper treatment that had lined the bathroom of my house when I had shared it with my husband. Then, as I stared, the vines resolved further, and I saw that they were words in cursive, the letters raised about six inches off the wall. Hold the light, I said, and pushed past them down the first few steps. Blood was rushing through my head again, a roaring confusion in my ears. It was an act of supreme control to walk those few paces. I couldn't tell you what impulse drove me except that I was the biologist and this looked oddly organic. If the linguist had been there, perhaps I would have deferred to her. Don't touch it, whatever it is, the anthropologist warned. I nodded, but I was too enthralled with the discovery. If I'd had the impulse to touch the words on the wall, I would not have been able to stop myself. As I came close, did it surprise me that I could understand the language the words were written in? Yes. Did it fill me with a kind of elation and dread intertwined? Yes. I tried to suppress the thousand new questions rising up inside of me. In as calm a voice as I could manage, aware of the importance of that moment, I read from the beginning aloud, Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner, I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that then the darkness took it. Words, words, the anthropologist said. Yes, words. What are they made of? The surveyor asked. Did they need to be made of anything? (laughs) Uh, uh, So good. One of the striking things to me about Annihilation is the intensity of its mood, which I think that 
that passage illustrates and the paranoia that engulfs this team of explorers sent into area X, as you were describing so much of that feeling of fear, which the opening of the book really has, has to do with tiny details, not sort of jump scares, not the monster coming around the corner. Uh, Those words are genuinely frightening when they appear. Uh, You know, there's also this sense, you know, a few pages later when they descend into the tower again, when the biologist feels confident that the tower isn't made of stone at all, but that it's alive and breathing. And I wondered if you could talk to us just in terms of the writing, um, how you developed that feeling of tension. Was it there immediately? Were there techniques you had to learn to help sort of create it along the way? Well, I think that there's always a disturbing quality if a thing you think is one thing turns out to be another. So the idea of a tower, which we automatically think of as being made of stone, turns out to be organic. And they can't decide on whether it's a tower or a tunnel, even though obviously we think of a tower as something that of the ground um, but in thinking but there was also a lot of thinking I think in my subconscious and then things you you know pull out after you've written a rough draft about the spatial relationships between the characters and the landscape which seems like a very dry topic but is something that really that thinking really helped the visceral tactile aspect of it and so I imagine the entire novel is a process of traveling down into something always a descent so even when they're actually just walking across wilderness or they're going up into the lighthouse. So that even in moments when it appears they're getting on top of the situation, the situation in terms of the words used to describe things is getting away from them. <laughs> and that, that dislocation, mm-hmm. I think, is especially intense when they go into the light, up into the lighthouse because I did a few destabilizing things and I'd have to you know, go back over and analyze it to, to, to see what. But, but really, there's, it's meant that as you're walking into the, up into the lighthouse, you feel like you're actually traveling down into a tunnel. Oh, um, that's but, nice. But yeah, that, I get that. that. And then there's also the things I learned from reading J.G. Ballard's stories, and not the content. I don't actually think he really dealt with the natural environment that much, uh, but he was expert at expanding and contracting space and time in his stories in the reader's mind. And so you study that technique, and you think about what are the destabilizing things that you can do. And then there's also you know things that I thought of that I don't know where they came from, like in the second book, Authority, um, any incidental dialogue, like in the halls or when he's in a bar, the main character, is actually repurposed annihilation dialogue. And the idea is to create this eerie sense of deja vu that you don't know where it's coming from. (laughs) Um, Things like that. And then also um, uh, the the movie, uh, Kubrick's version of The Shining, there's an amazing moment in it where there's a TV that's on and playing and there's no cord. And, of course, that doesn't register at all to a modern audience, right? But back then, that was an uncanny moment. And so when I saw that, I thought, what is the translation to um, fiction? You know, it would have to be a, a, not a literal translation because you can't just say there's a TV with no cord. Ooh, that's scary. Right. Um, but, <laughs> but, but what will destabilize? What will the reader not notice right away? Um, so there's a, some deliberate continuity errors involving like how large the lighthouse is on the inside, uh, which you have to be very careful about because they can just seem like mistakes. Right. But otherwise, they can seem more like maybe something out of House of Leaves or, you know. Yeah, uh, I was of thinking of House of Leaves when you were talking about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so things like that. And then, you know, you stack... The thing that Annihilation does, and I didn't realize this until after I wrote it, is it stacks a lot of genre tropes. It stacks them, but it stacks 
like six in a row and it stacks them in in unconventional ways at least that i've seen and so that also creates a destabilizing because you expect that the novel is one thing but then section by section it becomes something else um while still remaining true because it has this central expedition as the you know as the as the through line so to speak I love this idea of destabilization. That's really helpful. Um, and sort of the question of that, those moments, so much of the suspense being, where is this coming from? Am I right yeah. that this this is off? But there is a monster, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this thing that's creating oh, this yeah. writing on the wall of the tower. Yeah, I, oh, yes. you know, yeah. So the but but the thing is like, and, and it's held back for a long time in the story. Yeah, you know, and you know, I mean, people talk about the way that's done in Jaws, the way Spielberg holds back. The somewhat disappointing-looking shark for a long time in that movie. It's just a shark, <laughs> you know. But I'm also a devout listener to the Script Notes podcast. I don't know if either of you guys listen to that. It's John August and Craig Mazin are a couple of screenwriters, and they talk a lot about the mechanics of writing scripts. And one thing that's very clear is that scripts have a strict formal structure. You know, such and such has to happen by page five, etc. That doesn't apply to a novel like like this or any novel really. You know, so I mean, uh, uh, this is a this is a book that I love and 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 find intensely like page turning and gripping. And yet, if you think about it in terms of, of movie terms, like it also revolves repeated uh, attempts to walk down a staircase. You know, over a period of pages, <laughs> right? It doesn't seem very filmic in that way. You know. Yeah, no, and, um, you know, I have enough of a sense of humor to appreciate those moments. Um, and also the fact that conversations and annihilation, they're intensely absurd on purpose, uh, because when people are in emergency situations, they don't actually act rationally. And the transcripts are, are, are very strange. Um, but with regard to the monster, um, I think what I was after in the, in the books was to destabilize the usual reveal. Um, I didn't want I, I, the reason it's gradual is to kind of actually acclimate it. So you so when you actually finally see it, you can kind of notice more than just like the horror and and surprise of it, but kind of the beauty and the strangeness of it as well. Um, and I think Garland gets there a different way. Uh, he's still thinking about the same things. And in many ways, it's a very loose translation of the book, but you can see many points where he is translating, where he is reacting to something in the book. And so I do think that in the third act of the movie where you do see the the crawler and you don't, it's not, uh, not otherwise, you know, you don't see it before that. Uh, he does somehow manage visually to get the horror and beauty of it by being very precise. And the thing I found fascinating is on the set visit, they had what I would call a three-act structure of the visual imagination. Like literally the walls all around of this building, they had just pasted photo- photographs and pictures on some of which they had found, some of which they had created as like, what is the tone and texture of this part? Wow. And for the third third act, several of the images they had that were inspiration for the monster were the same things that I had come up with during my research, but we had not communicated about this. They had just come to it through parallel evolution. So I think that the depiction of the crawler is very accurate in some ways um, and uh, and very horrific and beautiful at the same time. You know, there's another monster, too, in there because there's a moaning creature in the books. And um, and uh, the moaning creature, uh, he translated into this uh, strange bear. Uh, that also combines, I think, aspects of the boar that's in the book. So there's another act of translation with a monster where 
someone may see it and say that's not from the book, but in, in actual fact, it kind of is, you know? Well, I mean, one of the things that was clear from talking to Christina and also just clear from observing, you know, uh, is that, you know, m- movies and books are not the same thing. The, 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 the filmmaker is going to, she describes it as a sort of triangulation, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, and so there, it's going to have to be different. I mean, I, and we're curious about that process. What the, and those specific details are really interesting. It's interesting to me that he decides to hold the reveal of the crawler until the third act. Uh, and it's interesting to me how you're talking about how he's like maybe uh, thought of other c- composite monsters that are going to be earlier in the mm-hmm. in the script. Does that make sense, or does that seem accurate? That that does make sense. And then there's another thing, which is, um, and maybe this is maybe revealing a little bit too much, but, and, and it's not faithful to the book as written, but, uh, the reason that for the reveal of the third act is because the tower tunnel is actually under the lighthouse in the movie. And what's really interesting about that. And again, Garland couldn't know this. There was an early draft where I actually wrote the lighthouse with the tower tunnel underneath it and shifted it as if that was something area X had actually done. Like originally it had been under the lighthouse. Um, so it's uh, weirdly again, like not true to the book, but kind of true to what I was thinking before I wrote the book. Um, so I find those very interesting translations. So we're talking a little bit about, um, space. I'm curious about how time works. I've seen the trailer and of course that could be out of chronological order too. I think trailers often are, but, uh, there's the scene of the group of explorers heading into area X. They're kind of going through that shimmering border, which is very cool by the way. But my guess is that the movie doesn't start kind of in the middle of things the way that the book does. And this was something we were talking about with Christina too, the way that the beginning of house and sand and fog, the time shifts at the beginning, uh, and that's one of the things about prose. It seems like flashbacks and complicated chronological structures are a lot easier on the page than they are in a film. Well, what's really fascinating is the difference between the script and the movie. And I think it speaks to what a director can do who also writes the script. Because in the script that I saw, at least, and I don't know how it changed since then, um, there is a difference in, in the rate of familiar to the strange. Like, I just plop you right in and I expect you to acclimate. And I try to give you some markers like we're all familiar with expeditions trying to deal with something unknown. So that's your kind of anchor. Um, in the book, in the movie, in the script at least, um, it starts out with, uh, you know, showing you the outside world, showing you the Southern Reef Secret Agency, and then the expedition gets started. Oh, um, and, and, and his idea, which I thought was really interesting, was destabilizing you along the way. So the vegetation gets stranger, the music gets stranger, and you may not even notice it because it's over time uh, in the movie. Uh, but then the actual movie actually has a fair amount of flashbacks and stuff out of chronological order. And so in, you know, putting it together after having the script and seeing the script come to live life, I guess, in this, in the scenes as, as filmed, there's actually a fair amount of the same kind of back and forth as in the book. So our most delayed episode of the fiction nonfiction podcast, listen up everyone is the environmental episode, which Whitney never lets me schedule. This is true. He says, he says that we never have a good news peg, like the death of Earth is not a good enough news peg for me. never do. <laughs> but when we do talk about this forever delayed episode, your name and your fiction always, always, always come up. Um, and the environment of Area X is, of course, this crucial part of the novel. And there's a sense in those words in the tower, I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead that echo the idea that we, in our treatment of the environment, are sowing the seeds of our own destruction. 
Yeah, and I mean, certain different kinds of explorations of those ideas are kind of in all my fiction since the late yeah. 80s. Um, and I kind of agree with you. I think every day is a good day to talk about the fact our house is burning down around us. <laughs> um, the environment, you know, is not a thing separate from us. And until we learn that basic fact, we're going to be in peril as well as the rest of the world. You know, in the books, I feel like Area X is to us as we are to animals, this arbitrary force that does things that can't be understood um, so that's one thing I was trying to get across that that might be useful in terms of trying to like, look from a different point of view and then I also really truly believe natural systems are very very sophisticated next to like the hard tech of human systems and that we often push back against natural systems in such a way that we don't go with the flow of the world you know and a simple example is that they've now developed like styrofoam that's made out of mushrooms you just toss it in your backyard and it biodegrades well that to me is an indicator of you know it's not about going back to the stone age it's about being smarter about the materials we use <laughs> and how we use them <laughs> it's that simple um, and so that gives me hope that there's still a way to turn this around because uh, I think, you know, one big argument against environmentalism, weirdly enough, is we won't be able to keep our quality of life, you know. And, of course, there's also the argument that, well, if we're all dead, you can't keep your quality of life either. So, <laughs> you know, so 30, like 30 long years ago when I was in college, uh, the primary env environmental writers, to use an awkward term, were, were nonfiction writers like Rachel Carson, John McPhee, Annie Dillard, Barry Lopez, people like that. Today... It seems like writers who are thinking about the environment are, are most often using techniques of science fiction, like you are, rather than creative nonfiction. You know, I mean, along with you, I'm thinking of Chang Ray Lee's novel, On Such a Full Sea, or Margaret Atwood, or Nathaniel Rich's The Odds Against Tomorrow, Claire V. Watkins' Gold Fame Citrus. Um, why do you think this has changed? Um, well, I mean, I, there are definitely periods in the 60s and 70s with very hard looks at the environment and this very question. So it kind of seems cyclical at times. And I uh -huh. do think also, though, that Atwood broke things kind of wide open. But, I, you know, I'd argue it's a general awakening. People think of climate fiction as a subset of science fiction now. But, in fact, the term is general enough to encompass, you know, any kind of fiction or storytelling that deals with the idea. I think because we're basically, well, we're in the, we're in the middle of it. We're kind of living in that future now. And so you see more and more contemporary mainstream novels with no speculative element that have some, some comment to make about climate change. And in fact, there may come a day, a crisis point, where novels of that type that don't address it are kind of living within a kind of bubble, I would say. Then I'm just wondering why the fiction part of it is so important now compared to the, these other writers who are kind of sort of trying to recreate a past world or, or re-report what the, the America had used to look like. There's a lot of ecstatic visions in that nonfiction too. Right. Um, you know, things that things that almost read like fiction because there is a sense you get when you're out in in a wilderness area that's almost spiritual. We 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 kind of blot out what's there. You know, half the world is still wild. We get all these reports we think that the wilderness isn't out there and it's kind of propaganda at this point. There's a lot out there worth saving. Um, and so I don't see it as really looking back. I just think maybe finally, you know, after a period of people not writing about it in their fiction, it's become more of an issue because it seems more immediate. And, and there is some, some uh, hopefulness in that, I suppose. I'm curious to know, sort of, were there any of the out of the writers who Whitney mentioned um, or, or others? I mean, were there... Are there ones who are particularly influential for you? Yeah, I, I think like the nonfiction writers, Rachel Carson is still the the gold standard, really. Um, and in terms of nonfiction, I just think that like 
somehow Atwood got the psychological aspects right. Like some of the science in her in that series is no longer valid. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really matter because somehow she captured something that actually works in terms of the actual effects. And um, and so I think that you know that's what's really important. Um, it's also important that you know writers don't rely on like received ideas about animals in the environment that are like 30 years out of date, which I see quite a bit. Um, you know, a writer will research physics until the cows come home, but they won't actually bother to, you know, look at current animal behavior science when they write something. So, so if I have a complaint about some of this stuff, it's that. It's that, you know, even if you're then, you know, going off into the speculative and, and maybe even the fantastical or surreal, um, the foundational assumptions you make first are very important. So speaking of animal behavior, um, I want to ask you uh, again about the crawler. Uh, When the biologist actually sees her monster, the crawler, she thinks no words can, no photograph could describe it. And though, of course, your descriptions of the crawler are extremely compelling. So I'm a little bit about how you invented the crawler and what you researched and sort of how you imagined it being in the film versus how it is um, with back in the eighties and would've been a guy in a foam rubber suit. Um, and today with special effects. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I was thinking a lot of uh, cephalopods and uh, things with cilia and things that seem very alien to us. I'm really struck by this idea of us being in a way on an alien planet. And there there are all these creatures that we still don't really know as much about as we would like. I mean, they just discovered something about cuttlefish disguise. They didn't know that's very, very important. Um, And actually, you know, some of this stuff actually has practical applications too. But in the movie, the crawler comes out wearing a top hat and tails and sings a song. Um, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, The one thing I can assure you, (laughs) one thing I can assure you of is that the monster is very cool and tactile and really interesting. I really like the monster. I mean, it's kind of one of the great things about science fiction movies now is that they used to really not be able to approximate the things that a writer could describe or think up. Um, And now they kind of can in certain ways. Right. I mean, it just depends. I mean, there's a lot of bad CGI out there, too. The um, the That's thing true. that I remember is that, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1970s version, yeah. is still very tactile and odd. And certain of Cronenberg's films, oh, yeah. because of the way they created the models, they, they don't seem, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem cheesy today. Um, so it can be done, you know, and those are some of the touchstones when I think of like things like how to convey body horror and transformation in addition to literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but but here Garland's created something very beautiful and strange and and and, and yes, horrific um, that I think definitely definitely mirrors what's in the book. I love how you keep twinning kind of beauty and horror. I keep thinking listening to you of older versions of Planet of the Apes, which I far prefer to the modern ones, <laughs> in part because because the people are discernible underneath their like terrible ape costumes. It's yeah. sort of it's it's un, it's more un, can I say more uncanny? It's uncannier to me uh, that I can sort of see that that little gap there that, you know, again, that idea of destabilization or familiarization, that kind of famous shot of when you realize that the Planet of the Apes is is us. Um, well, I mean, appreciation of beauty is in some ways an, an, a kind of empathy. It, it brings you closer to something that you might not otherwise 
you know, see that way. And so that's why I like weird fiction, because it often has that. It doesn't just have horror towards the unknown, but actually tries to appreciate it in some way. And speaking of Planet of the Apes, the weirdest experience I had as a child was being in Singapore at age nine and seeing one of those original movies with French dubbing and Chinese subtitles. Oh. Um, so if you can imagine oh God, <laughs> trying fantastic. to process one of those movies as a kid that way. <laughs> I once saw that's the crazy. original, the first Batman, you know, when that was, when the series was rebooted yeah, yeah. by, uh, what's the director's name? Oh, I forgot it was Joel, so Joel Schumacher. It was Joel oh. Schumacher. <laughs> was he the first sort of dark, I think so. dark Batman? It was, uh, the, it's Keaton Batman. Yeah, yeah the Michael know. Keaton Batman. Yeah. And I saw it in a sort of rough neighborhood in Beiling, Brazil, near mm. the Amazon River. And I was with all these Brazilians, and I recognized it as like a film of empire. Mm. You know, like it's, oh, it played it totally so is. differently in that Yeah, things do recontextualize that, that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was so terrifying, much more terrifying to me than it would have been anywhere else, and also mm. made me terrified to be an American in certain ways. Mm. Anyway, whereas, um, yeah, I feel like the last sort of language dis- displaced movie watching experience I had was I had some French relatives who showed me Fargo, the TV series um, <laughs> in I God, what did they show it in Hindi with French subtitles? And oh, then wow. I was like, you, I, you guys, I don't speak Hindi or French. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to sort of give up. But um, that's yeah, that sort of yeah, this sort of this sort of um, the environment that is so familiar to you being turned into something else. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think also the 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 terror the 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 horror of being an American right now. Sadly enough, the books uh, convey that because there's there's large in life villains in like authority. Um, just riffing off of what you said about the the Batman experience yeah. that that. Yeah. Um, you know, are actually taken from observations in business that people have said, there's no way that's a real person. And it's like, well, actually there are, as we now know, people who are like that. Well, I mean, one of the great things about the trilogy, and this comes even more clear in the in the later books, is that it's also a critique of bureaucracy and how bureaucracy functions and, and perverts and, and, and changes people. And so I find that to be one of the wonderful parts. I mean, well, if you think seeing something expressed well that you know to be true is always wonderful. So I found that to be a wonderful part of those books. Yeah. The, um, one of the best and most horrific things ever was in, in doing a reading in DC and having someone from the EPA fairly high up, uh, come <laughs> up and, and tell me that authority was the most darkly funny book she'd ever read. Um, oh, and that was like flattering, but also, and it was meant to, it's meant to be darkly funny for those who are familiar with these kinds of bureaucracies. Um, but yeah, I was also horrified to hear that. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. The, which reminds me that I was just reading this. I, I wonder if this, I need to go back and click on this headline. The head of the EPA does not want to yeah. find coach because people are mean to him in coach. I was like, uh, put me yeah. in coach with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, I just I can't even process what's going on. Some days I just have to go out and work on feeding the birds at the bird feeders and making the lawn more animal friendly and just leave it at that because you get frozen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an amazing treat. 
And listeners, you can take a look at Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, his 2017 novel Born, and go see Annihilation in theaters starting February 23rd. And you can see the monster for yourself that way and see if that top hat and tails come out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the great questions, too. <laughs> Such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. All right. Take care. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. It's been a tough week for news. We've been watching, listening, and responding like the rest of you. And we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. We wanted to give one last novel adaptation shout-out to Mudbound, whose screenplay, co-written by director Dee Reese and Virgil Williams, is nominated for an Oscar this year. It's based on a book by Hilary Jordan. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the News tab. Links to the books we referenced this week will appear on that page or on our Facebook page at FNF Pod or on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and just in case, Suki and I both want to thank you, Kat.